Hi, I'm Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. The way we see the world today is informed a lot by our past, both the good and the bad. This is where our podcasts come in. Podcasts like Residential Schools, a three-part series created to honor the stories of survivors, their families and communities, and to commemorate the history and legacy of residential schools in Canada. I didn't want to be an Indian. I didn't know who the hell I wanted to be. I wasn't accepted by the white man. I wasn't accepted by my own people in my reserve. Subscribe to Historica Canada podcast for deep dives into our past. You can listen to residential schools on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Never stop learning. In 1971, Canada became the first country in the world to adopt an official multiculturalism policy. It was meant to preserve cultural freedoms and recognize the contributions of diverse groups to Canadian society. Today, multiculturalism is a defining feature of the Canadian identity. But for much of our history, that wasn't the case. Listen to A Place to Belong, A History of Multiculturalism in Canada, a five-part series from Historica Canada, Join us as we explore the history of multiculturalism in Canada. Subscribe to A Place to Belong on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we thought, well, once we're here, we'll never get out alive. Nobody will ever know we've been here. Nobody even knows where we are. You could hear the moans and groans and agonies of people being tortured by the Gestapo. You could hear shots ringing out. Welcome to Record of Service, a podcast presented by Historica Canada. I'm your host, Maya Foster. In this series, we bring you interviews with Canada's veterans, their stories of life, loss, and service. This episode will focus on the story of Edward Carter Edwards, a Canadian airman who was shot down over France. Just a warning to those that may be listening with young ones around, today's story contains graphic descriptions. I don't remember this. I don't remember pulling the ripcord. I don't remember counting up to 10. I do remember the parachute opening, and I do remember floating down. You hear all kinds of stories, and you hear all kinds of uh, sad experiences. And so you get to know what targets were the worst ones. And the one that stuck out most of all was the one to Berlin because it was a long haul. It was dangerous. It was probably six or seven hours in the flight. And so you would spend many hours over enemy territory, exposed to flak, fighters, um, uh, searchlights. But you always thought it wasn't going to be you. It was going to be somebody else. So everything went quite well till uh, number 22. We took off on the 7th of June, and this is our target. And so it was a railway yard, and so that our, our purpose was to destroy this target. We took off, and we're just minutes from bombing, dropping our bomb when the whole aircraft shook, just as if somebody was hitting it with a sledgehammer. The captain alerted his crew to prepare to abandon the aircraft. A German fighter had flown underneath their plane and fired. We had to bail out in a heck of a hurry. And it wasn't until many, many years later that I met my navigator, and he said, do you remember the night we got shot down? And I said, well, kinda. Uh, I don't remember, I said, I don't remember leaving the aircraft. He said, well, no wonder. 
you were sitting in the escape hatch at the front of the aircraft, and you, I froze. I didn't know this, and I don't remember, but I froze in that position, which meant I blocked Gordy's exit, the navigator, who was behind me. He couldn't get out, so he said, all I did was push my, put my foot on your back and shoved you out because I want to get out too. When their Halifax bomber crashed, the blaze lit up the countryside. He and his crew were on the ground, separated, in German-occupied France. I could see uh, the Seine River. I could see a, a white church steeple sticking up. I could see what looked like a forest uh, on one side. And just before I entered the forest, I stopped and looked back towards the burning aircraft, and there was a shadow running towards me. It was the bomb aimer from his crew. The two men hugged. And as we ran towards the bush, we, it looked like a path. So we, we, we buried our chutes under some bushes, and then, then we ran along this path together. We came to a fork in the path, and Tom was not visible in front of me, and I couldn't hear him, so I called, Tom, Tom, where are you? Edward didn't know which path Tom had taken. Years later, he would discover that, in fact, Tom had turned left and was picked up by the French resistance. Tom would remain with the Maquis until the Allies liberated France. Edward, however, turned right. Came into a little village, and I knocked on several doors, and there was a gate. And I stood there, I looked, and sure enough, there was two women there. And I said in my poor high school French, avez-vous la pain, s'il vous plaît? Which means, have you any bread, please? And the one lady said to me, in good English, who are you? What do you want? What are you doing here? I said, I'm a Canadian airman. I was shot down a few nights ago. I need food. I need help. I want to be in touch with the underground. I'd like to get back to England. So she ushered me into the house, took me into the kitchen, gave me a bowl of hot milk and bread. And she said, now, you can't stay here because if the Gestapo find you here, you may not be executed, but we will. Edward stayed with the women for a couple of days until a young man and woman brought him a fake French passport. The couple promised Edward safe passage to Spain. Anyway, the driver drove through Paris pretty fast. And the last thing I remember seeing was the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. He stopped at a, a Gestapo roadblock. He got out and he went over to somebody within authority. And immediately six or seven of the military came with the car. They opened up the door of the car and they physically pulled us out of the car like sacks of potatoes, threw us down the ground and proceeded to beat the living daylight silence with their jackboots and rifles and were laying on the ground, hurt, bleeding, sore, scared. And the great big German standing over me, and I got up and stood in front of him, and he pulled out his Luger, and he jabbed it right between my eyes, and I stand in front of him, he says, in good English, who are you? What are you doing here? I'm a Canadian airman. I demand uh, protection under the Geneva Convention. You're not airmen, you're all spies and saboteurs, and will be executed as such. For more than a month, Edward and his comrades languished in Fren, a German-run French prison. So the four of us are in a little cell about, about six by eight, and uh, one of us slept on a, just a, a wrought iron cot that was attached to the wall. The other three of us slept on the floor, and uh, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible place. We find out in a hurry, the place is lousy with fleas. And so we used to take time among ourselves, the four of us, in order to retain, maintain our sanity, to go through the seams of our clothing, to see how many fleas we could kill. 
and competition. Soon, their fate took a turn for the worse. So they gathered everybody up and they took us by trucks and buses down to the railway yard in Paris, where we were forced into these little French cattle car, like sardines in a can. You can hardly sit, you can hardly stand, you can hardly do it. And so you're almost like doubled up. A young French lad of about 17 or 18 uh, happened to be looking out the window and he put his hand on the edge of the window frame and the German guard walking by saw it and he shot at him and the bullet went through his hand. And so they opened up the door of the car and said, somebody in here been hurt? And our boys thought they were doing the right thing. They said, yeah, this young lad got shot in the hand. So the German guard ordered, ordered him out of the car made him march down the embankment, they shot him in the back. And as he fell convulsively, uh, he didn't die. And so a German officer coming along, uh, came over and put a few more rounds in the back of his head. And then they closed the doors and we took off. The train's last stop was Buchenwald. Established in 1937, it was one of the largest concentration camps built on German soil. The Allied airmen shouldn't have been sent there, they should have been sent to a prisoner of war camp. At the beginning, we didn't eat the bread they gave us, which was a composition of who knows what, and we would throw it away. Men, other men hung around us, and they would die for this bread, like a pack of hungry wolves. After a while, we ate this bread because it was the only thing we had. According to camp records, some 240,000 prisoners from 30 different countries passed through its walls. It had no gas chambers on site, but 10,000 of its prisoners would eventually be sent to extermination camps, while an additional 43,000 died from malnutrition, disease, and violence at the hands of camp guards. It's very difficult to convince and tell people the cruelty, the sadism, the brutality that took place in this, I call it the gates of hell. Because they couldn't, they couldn't keep up with the dead and dying. As a matter of fact, they had a hut, one of the huts where you could see bodies piled in there, just like cordwood waiting to go into the uh, into the crematorium. I had to go and work in the quarry for two days, uh, which 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 would have taken me if I had not been for the help of a young um, uh, Dutch lad who was a prisoner book wall. He said, I'm, I'm going to take your name off the work list and put you down as having died. What you do with your time is up to you, but the least I can do is so that you would not have to go out and work in the quarry. Because if I had, I would never have made it. The quarry was really a death sentence. It was a death sentence for a lot of the Russians and a lot of the Jewish people. It was basically a place where they tortured you, uh, not physically, but they tortured by, by working you to death. And then a miracle. Somehow or another, the German Air Force found out there was Allied Airmen in Buchwald. And around the middle of uh, October 1944, they came in and they literally snuck out of Buchwald roughly 152-54 Allied Airmen. Twelve of us were so sick, we couldn't be moved. As a matter of fact, we were dying. And so we were left behind till the day when a German officer stood there beside my, where I was lying on a cot, and uh, he said, I'm taking you to uh, three. To clarify, the officer told Edward he was going to a prisoner of war camp for Allied airmen. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle to think that somehow the German Air Force, 
who's our enemy in combat, but comrades in arms found out that there was Allied airmen in Bukovar, and they saved their lives. We were all slayed to be hung on the meat hooks. Record of Service is a production of the Memory Project Speakers Bureau and Archive, connecting veterans and Canadian Forces members with school and community groups from coast to coast. The Memory Project has been made possible in part by the Government of Canada. We are a program of Historica Canada, a nonprofit offering programs that you can use to explore, learn, and reflect on Canadian history and what it means to be Canadian. Go to thememoryproject.com to browse our archive of interviews or to book a speaker for your classroom or community event. If you're a veteran or an active member of the Canadian Forces, please contact us to find out how you can become a speaker. Additional text from this episode comes from our sister program, the Canadian Encyclopedia. If you liked this episode and want to learn more about Canada and the Holocaust, check out the Canadian Encyclopedia's article at thecanadianencyclopedia.ca. If you like what we do, consider making a donation to Historica Canada at historicacanada.ca.